We are in week three of our series called Urgent. Uh, and over the last several weeks, we have looked into the urgent call that we have as believers in Jesus to live on mission for him. And we've, we, we have this urgency, we have this urgent call because there are some realities that we have to understand and come to grips with. The first being that Jesus is coming again. That's what we looked at week one. Do you believe that? Jesus is coming again, and because that's a reality, it should give us a sense of urgency in how we live and in how we share and proclaim the gospel. And then last week, we looked at another reality, and it is this, not a popular one, but a real one, and that is that hell is real. Hell is an actual place where people will spend eternity separated from God, and according to the words of Jesus, most people will go there. And so because we have the reality that Jesus is coming again, and because we have the reality that hell is real, this gives us a sense of gospel urgency. And there's another reason we're going to look at this morning, why we live with this sense of urgency, and it is this, because the harvest is ready. The harvest is ready. You know, Carrie and I spent about five years living in the Mississippi Delta. Anybody in here familiar with the Mississippi Delta area? Ever been in that area? Yeah. So what this is, it's a lot of swamp land that had been converted over a long time into very rich farmland. So they grow lots of stuff out there, corn, cotton, soybean, rice, even catfish. Did you know most of the catfish, that, uh, unless it's grown local, comes from the Mississippi Delta here in the United States? And so we grew up, spent five years in the Mississippi Delta, and well, here's what we discovered about these farmers who own all this agricultural land. Um, they are crazy hard workers. Okay, that's where I learned what it really meant, that I'm working before the sun, and I'm working when the sun has already said goodbye. I learned what that actually meant there. That, they do that. That's a real thing. And uh, they are very hard workers. They work long days. But here's the other thing we discovered. They are exceedingly happy people. Just happy people. And I think one of the reasons they're so happy is that there's something very satisfying for them in this idea of planting something in the ground and nurturing it and cultivating it and watering it and seeing it grow so that at the right time you can harvest it and plant again. There's just something very satisfying for them uh, in, in that rhythm and in that time. And one of the things we learned was when it is time for harvest, whether it's the rice or the cotton or the soybeans or the corn, whatever it is, when it's time for harvest, everything else in their life takes a back seat and harvest gets priority. Everything. Nothing matters until it's out of the field and it's in the barn or in the silos or headed wherever they're storing it. Nothing matters until the harvest is in. And listen, in that same way, just like that, sharing our faith being a part of the spiritual harvest of God's kingdom. Listen, it's hard work. There are long days. But those who exhaust their lives on mission for God are exceedingly happy people. They are happy people. And we're going to see this morning that Jesus has said to us, the harvest is ready. The harvest is ready ready. And because it's ready, it has to shift our priorities to be on mission. Listen, this is why at New Beginnings, we have as a core value going on mission. 
We have four core values at New Beginnings. We gather and worship, we grow through community, we give to the kingdom, and we go on mission. It's a core value because we, we take the words of Jesus serious where he says, the field is white for harvest. And so this is a core value for us. And we do that right here on our campus, we do that in the city, and we do that around the world. So it's with that in mind, I want you to grab your Bible and go to John chapter 4. We're going to be in John chapter 4 today, kind of in the second uh, half of that chapter, starting in verse 27. But to kind of catch you up on on where we are in the narrative of John chapter 4, it's a very famous story. You guys know John chapter 4 is where Jesus has the conversation with the woman at the well. Uh, Most of us are familiar with that story. You remember Jesus and his disciples were traveling. They went through Samaria. They stopped at this town in Samaria called Sakar at a well, at Jacob's well, and they stopped there because they were tired and they were hungry and they were thirsty. And Jesus sends his disciples into town to buy food. Now, something I find very interesting was he sent 12 grown men to go buy food for 13 men. And I thought, it feels like Jesus couldn't trust them with the shopping list is what it feels like. He felt like he had to have the whole crew go and make sure they got. I know that Carrie does not like sending me to Walmart. You want to know why? Because I never come back with less than what I need. I always come back with way more than what I need. And she can't trust me with a shopping. And it feels like Jesus is having one of these. I'm going to send all 12 of y'all to go get the things that 13 of us need, right? But I actually think there's another reason why Jesus sends all of them Away, And I think it's because he wants to have a very personal conversation um, with this Samaritan woman at the well. And this woman was not someone that you would expect a godly Jewish man to be talking to. First, she was a Samaritan. And if you know that history, the Jews and the Samaritans hated one another. There was no connection between them. But she was also um, a, a woman who was steeped in sin and steeped in failures in her life, so much so that her reputation was so bad that the people in her own town had rejected her. And yet, what do we see? We see Jesus pursue her. He pursues her heart. Why? I think one reason is to remind us that he isn't go, that Jesus didn't come to just go after those who are easy to love and easy to accept. That's a tough teaching. This ain't the sermon, but we're going to be here for about 10 seconds. I have missed often the opportunity to live on mission for God because the person was hard to love. Anybody else just want to get on that bus with me? Jesus had a conversation with a woman for the exact purpose of saying, my mission has nothing to do with whether or not they're easy to love and easy to accept. Jesus didn't come to just grab the kids that sit at the cool kids table or be the heavy hitters. He came to get the ones who had nothing to offer. He came to get the ones who had nothing but need so that when they find him, they find everything they need. That's what he did. And Jesus navigates through a very fascinating conversation with the Samaritan woman, ultimately telling her that he is the Christ. And immediately, her life is changed. Immediately, we see a difference. So let's pick it up at verse 27. Jesus has just told her that he is the Christ. And look at verse 27. Just then, his disciples came back, and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? 
So the woman left her jar and went away into the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, listen to this, I have food to eat that you do not know about. And so the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say that there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not sow. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. And many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony that he had told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. Let's pray, and let's just ask God to um, illuminate our hearts and open our eyes and give us the spiritual vision that we need to, to see his word today. Father, I'm asking... Uh, that you would just do that thing, God, that you would open the eyes of our heart to see your word, God, to see the truth there. Your word says, God, that your living word is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, and for correction and instruction in righteousness. And God, cards on the table this morning, you know that my heart needs reproof and correction when it comes to being bold for your mission and being um, on mission and being an evangelist, sharing the gospel. So God, I pray that through your word, you would reprove our hearts and you would correct our hearts and you would teach our hearts and instruct us in righteousness. Give us boldness to live for you. Let it begin in your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. What an incredible turnaround that we see in the life of this woman, right? She goes from hiding in the heat of the day hoping no one will notice her, to boldly declaring that she has found the Christ. Just like that. Suddenly, she has a gospel urgency. Suddenly, she is on mission. And there are a few questions that I think we see answered in God's Word and through her example. What does it mean to live on God's mission? What happens in our lives when we make the mission of God the priority of our lives? I think we see those answers here in John 4. So there's four things that I want us to take this morning. Four things that I want us to um, receive that happen when we live on God's mission. And I need every one of these in my life. Here's the first. When we live on God's mission, our witness is an act of worship. When we live on God's witness, when we live on God's mission, our witness becomes an act of worship. Look at what happens in verse 27. Just then the disciples come back. They've marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So what happened? So the woman left her water jar, went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? 
If we look at the reaction of this Samaritan woman to what she has experienced with Christ, we see something incredibly important, and it's this. The moment Jesus reveals who he is to her, the moment she truly sees Jesus, what is her response? She becomes a witness. That moment. And listen, at at its most basic level, that's what worship is. Worship is revelation and response. Worship is God reveals himself to us. He shows us who he is and we respond to him so that when we come in here and we sing these songs of worship, God has revealed himself as the unstoppable God. He has revealed himself who's the one who overcomes fear. He has revealed himself in Christ as our living hope. And we respond to that by singing back to him and by clapping our hands and lifting our voices. Worship is he reveals and we respond. And that's exactly what we see. That's the pattern we see play out in this conversation between Jesus and the woman. You see, if you go back to verse 7 of John 4, Jesus begins to reveal himself to her, and he does it by digging through all the layers of her life. Jesus is about to read her journal, folks. He's about to get very, very personal. And he doesn't do it to shame her. He doesn't do it to embarrass her. He does it to save her. We see Jesus, he starts to peel back the layer of her sinful past. He just starts peeling that layer off. He starts peeling back the layer of her unhealthy relationships. She had five marriages. He starts peeling back the layer of her current living condition. The man she's with now, living with, not married to. He starts peeling back the layer of her reputation, of her her societal position. He starts peeling through that. He peels back the layer of her religious covering. You see, as soon as Jesus started pointing out our sin, she immediately changed the conversation and wanted to talk about where to worship. And Jesus just peels back the layer of that religious covering. Do you know people will use religious language to try to cover what's really going on in their heart? Maybe you've done that. I've certainly done it. We use religious lingo and we really put up a spiritual front so that nobody gets to the issue that's really going on. Well, Jesus saw to the heart. He just peels right through that layer because he's chasing her down. He wants to make a a worshiper and a believer out of her. And he gets right down into the layer where she has no self-worth and no value because of the choices that she's made. And Jesus does this not to just embarrass her because she has a need, but to reveal that he is the fulfillment of what she truly needs and that her salvation has nothing to do with her social position and, or, her, or her moral quality and everything to do with his love. Do you find it interesting that Jesus didn't go immediately reveal himself to the chief priest? You know, the Jewish people would have told you they were looking for Messiah. They're waiting for Messiah. I can tell you right now, I would have made a terrible Messiah, and here's why. Because the first thing I would have done was go to the chief priest and say, Hey, big cat, you're in my seat. You got to go. Daddy's here. You got to bounce. You know what I mean? That's the first, I promise you. I would have been a terrible, terrible Jesus didn't reveal himself to the chief priest. He didn't reveal himself to rabbis. Jesus revealed himself to a morally bankrupt woman. 
Why? Why did he do that? Because I think he wanted to teach her and to teach us that our goodness, our societal standing, and our religious knowledge does not save us. I know that this morning there are some in here who believe what they know about Jesus is going to save them. And you've got to get to the place where you realize you may know a book full of facts, but you've never met him. My favorite guitarist on planet Earth, and there's no arguing with me here, he is the best, okay, is Eric Clapton. He is singularly the greatest guitar player in the history of time, and uh, I just believe that with all my heart. And I can tell you lots of stuff about him, right? I know the bands he went through. I know his hits. I can hear him play, and I can tell you it's him in the middle of a song because I've listened to the music so much. I know all kind of stuff about him. You want me to tell you something else about him? Never met him. Not once. He couldn't pick me out of a lineup. We're not boys. He don't follow me. I don't follow him on social media. We don't know each other, but I know a lot about him. And too many people come in and out of church and they take an Eric Clapton approach to Jesus. I know lots of stuff about him, but he's never transformed my heart. Hell will be filled with people who know a lot of stuff about Jesus and never met him. So I just got to pause for a minute and ask, have you met him? Has Jesus transformed your heart? I don't want to know what you know about him. I want to know that you know him, that you've met him, that he's taken you from what you were and made you something new. That's what I want to know. And Jesus wanted this lady to know what you know about the temple and where to worship and what we believe and what Samaritans believe. It doesn't matter. Salvation is in me. And that's what I want us to, to grab right here. Here's why. Because by the end of this conversation, Jesus reveals that he is the Messiah. Verse 25 and 26 of John 4. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. So she's looking for him too, right? He who is called the Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And look at what Jesus says. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. That is the first and clearest declaration that Jesus makes of himself as the Savior of the world. Right there. And how does she respond? What does she do? She immediately becomes a witness when she had seen Christ and experienced him and her life was changed by him. There was only one plausible response for her. Nothing else mattered. Nothing else seemed right. Nothing else seemed necessary except to go and tell someone. Look at verse 28. I love this verse. So she sees that he's the Christ. And so the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come see a man. Now, why had she left her house in the first place that morning? To get water, right? She had left her house to get water, but now she's found something different. And the fact that she came to get water doesn't matter anymore. The schedule she had set for her day doesn't matter anymore. The priorities that she had for her life didn't matter anymore. Listen, even what the people thought about her and all those people she's running to and how they've ridiculed her and made her feel ashamed of herself, that didn't matter anymore. She met Jesus and it all changed. 
She received an entirely new set of priorities. And the moment Jesus revealed himself to her, her first act of worship was she didn't sing a song. She didn't give an offering. She didn't pray a prayer. She worshiped in her witness. That's what happens when we live on God's mission. Our witness becomes an act of worship. Here's the second thing I think we see. When we live on God's mission, we are fed with what truly satisfies. We're fed with what truly satisfies. Look at verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. We went and got all these groceries. You sent all 12 of us. Time to eat, right? But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. And verse 33 tells me I am so much like the disciples, it's not even funny. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Did, did that lady give, did she give him some biscuits or something? Because we were gone, he met her, he's not hungry anymore. But listen to what verse 34 says. Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Now remember, remember the physical condition that the disciples and Jesus were in when they got to this well. They were tired. They were dirty. They were hungry. They were thirsty. Jesus sends them away to get food. And when they come back, he is already filled up to overflowing. What happened in between them leaving and them coming back? Jesus was on mission. Jesus is teaching us something critical here, and it's this. God's mission is life-giving, not life-depleting. Somebody needs to hear that. God's mission is life-giving. Living on mission for Jesus is life-enriching, and it is satisfying like nothing else. And too often, we tap out because we think it's too costly. I've been doing... Uh, funerals for 25 years. I've been around them my whole life, and I've been around believers who were making that transition from this world into the presence of the Lord. And of all the believers I've met, I've yet to meet one, not one, who came to that moment and said, Matt, my only regret is I just spent too much time living for Jesus. <laughs> the only regret I have in my life is I was too committed to the mission of God. I've not met one believer who has... No, I've met plenty of them who said, you know what, I wasted time on things that were worth less than pursuing the heart of Jesus. I've met plenty of that. But I've not met a single person who regretted an instant that they lived their life on mission. Why? Because those who live on mission find that mission life-giving, satisfying. It fills them up. And when they come to the end of their life, they do not regret a single moment of it because they found the abundant life that Jesus talked about in John 10. They found it. And it was their joy to live that way. That's how I want to be when I come to the end of this race. I don't want to come to the end of this race and only be able to think about the moments I wasted chasing things that didn't matter. I want to come to the end of this race and I want to say, I am tired. I am broke. I am worn out because I gave it all for Christ. And I lived on mission for him. 
And I want that to be satisfying, and I know that it will. You know, this sermon series we just came out of uh, a month or so ago, we were looking at the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. And what did Jesus say about those who hunger and thirst after righteousness? What did he say? They will be what? Satisfied. They'll be filled. He said, they're, they're going to be satisfied. What does it mean then to hunger and thirst for righteousness? It means to live for God, to hunger after God, to have your priorities set and shaped by God. It means to live on mission for God. And Jesus says, those who do that, they find satisfaction. And he is demonstrating that for us in John 4. I love what uh, Charles Spurgeon said about this exhausting our lives for the mission of God, he said this, he who will glorify God, whatever it may cost him, is a happy person. He who serves God to the utmost of his power finds new power given to him hour by hour, for God opens up to him fresh springs. The mission of God is life-giving because the power of God meets us in our obedience. The power of God meets us on mission, meets us in our serving, and renews us. Now, I don't think Jesus was telling his disciples, hey guys, look, super spiritual people, we don't have to eat. I don't think he was saying that. Thank God he wasn't saying that. That's all I'm saying. You know what I mean? Because I'm, I'm a failure, if that's what he's saying. <laughs> is that what he's saying? We need food, right? Food is what we need in order to work. Food is, food is what gives us strength for the work. So what does Jesus mean when he says, my food is to do the will of the one who sent me and to accomplish his work? I think he's saying, hey guys, as a man, I get hungry, I get tired, and I get thirsty just like you, and I need food just like you. But as God, Jesus was living on and being fed by his obedience to the Father. In other words, Jesus was strengthened to do what God had called him to do by doing what God had called him to do. Does that make sense? Jesus was fed to do the will of God by doing the will of God. Some of you in here this morning, you need a shot of energy and a shot of life into your walk. You need a renewed sense of focus and purpose. You need a new anointing for a new day. You need a refilling. You need a refreshing. You need a renewing. You need a refueling in your life. And how do I get that, Pastor Matt? You do what Jesus did. You simply walk with Christ. You obey. And do you know what happens in your obedience? God meets you there, and he fills you up with what satisfies. Jesus said, I am filled to overflowing, and I don't need the food you just bought. I just need to do the will of God. And in doing that, I'm satisfied. Jesus loved the will of God, didn't he? He didn't submit to it reluctantly. He loved it. He pursued it. And as we do that with him, like him, we find the same fulfillment as him. So when we live on God's mission, we are fed with what truly satisfies. Here's the third thing I want you to see. When we live on God's mission, our eyes are opened 
to see the harvest. Our eyes are open to see the harvest. Jesus said in verse 35, Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? By the way, that was the rhythm. The agricultural rhythm for this area was between planting and harvesting about four months. That was just the rhythm. But look what he says. But look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. I want us to get our picture of what is happening when Jesus says these words. He says, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Now remember, the Samaritan woman who was converted to Christ, she ran into town. She immediately began telling people that they needed to come and see the man who had changed her life. She responds to Jesus by worshiping through her witness, right? And now the people are coming. They're coming out. The people of the town, for whatever reason, are coming. Maybe they're coming because they think she's crazy. This lady is crazy. She's already got a reputation. Maybe they're coming because they want to discredit her. They want to get some more ammunition to ridicule her. Maybe they're coming because they're genuinely intrigued. But for whatever reason, they are leaving that town. They are coming out to where Jesus is. And I have to imagine that in that moment, Jesus turns the shoulders of his disciples and he says, Look, here they come. Lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white to harvest. Here they come right now. Now, why did the disciples need that? Why did they need to have their spiritual eyes opened to see the harvest? Listen, for the same reason we do. Can I say something? The disciples weren't good at being on mission at first. They were terrible at it. They were terrible at it. They didn't know how to be on mission. They grew to be good on mission. Do you want to know why? They just kept saying yes to Jesus. Over and over. You want to grow in your prayer life? Pray. You want to grow in your worship life? Worship. You want to grow in being generous? Give. You want to grow in the depth of your understanding of God's Word? Read it. You want to grow as a witness? Tell somebody. How did they get better at mission? They just got on mission. They just kept saying yes to Jesus. But they also, like us, needed their spiritual eyes open because, like us, we are spiritually blind. And Jesus has to deal with this spiritually blind condition in us all the time for one of two reasons. One, because we are still in darkness, we are still separated from God, and we have not been born again. Or, which may be the case for most of us, as believers in Jesus Christ, our eyes have dimmed to the glory of God and the mission of God because we have stared too much into the world. Some of us are spiritually blind because our eyes have dimmed. Because we aren't looking at the glory of God anymore. We're staring into the world. And the longer I look into the world, the less I see the mission of God. The longer I stare into the things that are worth less than Jesus, this world, the less I see the glory of God. My eyes start to dim. So Jesus has to deal with our spiritual blindness. 
being on God's mission requires spiritual vision. It demands being able to see people where they are, right? Not living with blinders on, not looking past them because they are inconvenient. I think this is why Jesus sent the disciples away, because they would have looked right past this woman, and they would have messed up this opportunity to turn her into a worshiper and a witness. God, how many opportunities have I missed because it wasn't convenient. In being on God's mission, the issue is never, ever, that the harvest isn't ready. The issue is always that the laborers don't see the harvest, that the laborers aren't ready and there aren't enough of us. That's the issue. So the question we want to answer is, where is the field and where is the harvest for us? I found something really interesting out this week. It, was, it just blew me away. There's a biblical scholar that went through and looked in all, all four Gospels. Here's what he found. There were 132 unique connections or conversations that Jesus had with people. 132 unique connections in all four of the Gospels, right? 132 times Jesus has a conversation, just a unique encounter with someone. Out of the 132, six of them were in the temple. Out of the 132, four of them were in the synagogue. And 122 of them were away from any church or spiritual building. Now, there's something for us in that. There's something for us in that. You want to know what it is? Jesus knew that the mission of God may be taught at the church, but it is only obeyed outside the church. You can't obey the mission of God in here. Jesus spent almost all of his conversational, connecting, relational time away from the church, out at work, out in the street, out in the school, and in the home. So where is the field for you? It's not in here. It's out there. That's where the field is. We have to let our eyes be opened to see the harvest. Right now, right now, there are people in your circle that need to hear you say the name of Jesus. And for whatever reason, you hesitate. That's going to cost me something if I do that. They're going to, it's going to change the way they look at me. No, it might. It might. You know, that's really inconvenient. We only see each other in passing. It's going to be stopping, setting up this whole conversation. It's going to be a whole, yeah, it may be inconvenient. People are going to wonder why I'm talking to that person. Yeah, they, they might. But when your eyes are opened to the harvest, you realize you live in the field. I live in the field. <laughs> so do you. And when we live on God's mission, our eyes are open to see it. Here's the last thing I want you to see. When we live on God's mission, we discover the power of our story. We discover the power of our story. If you are a believer in Jesus, if he has changed your life, then you have a story, and it is powerful. And God wants to use your story to give someone else a story. Did you know that? 
Look at verse 39 of John 4. It says, many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of what? The woman's testimony. Because of her story. There is power in one story. There is power in one person being willing to speak up about what Christ has done for them. I want you to hear me say this. A life that has been transformed by the gospel is both noticeable and it is attractive. These people realized she went to the well one person and she came back somebody else. Why? Because a life that's been transformed by the gospel is noticeable. It's attractive. People are going to see a difference. Listen to me. God wants to use your story and he may use your story to do the most unexpected thing among the most unexpected people. Here we are in Samaria, right? And God starts a spiritual awakening in the town of Sakar. An unlikely woman becomes the means of an unlikely people turning to Jesus. This ought to encourage us today. Because we live in a culture where we are convinced no one wants to talk about spiritual things. Matt, come on. No one wants to talk about Jesus. They will talk about any, they will talk about the most private, jacked up medical condition they have before they talk about Jesus. I've discovered that to be true. You bring that up and they'll start talking about some stuff. You're like, hey man, that's between you and your doctor and your counselor. That ain't, that's just, I don't want to know that. Right? They will gnaw their arm off conversationally to avoid talking about spiritual things. And yet, this gives us courage. Why? Because there are people in Gilmer, God wants to win, and we're the plan to win them. It's us. We're plan A. You have a story, and the story that you have is meant to win somebody in the field where you've been planted who needs a story. We're the... We have that story. He's given us a story so that we can help give someone else a story. We can just tell of the transformative power that we have experienced. The city of Sakar was changed because one woman was willing to say what Christ had done for her. So how did she do it? I want to make it real practical. How did she do it? I think there's three words that come to mind. We follow the example of the woman at the well who becomes the witness. What did she do? I'm going to give you three words. You ready? Bravery, simplicity, transparency. That's the three words. Bravery, simplicity, and transparency. Those are the three words that you need to live on mission for God. What do I mean by that? This lady was brave. She went to the people that had been, she had been avoiding for years. She went to the people who ridiculed her. She went to the people who talked trash about her life, who knew all of her failures. She, she went to the people where she already had a low social standing and was willing for that standing to get even worse. And yet she was brave and she went. She was bravery. Simplicity. I wanted you to notice the invitation that she said to the people. She leaves the water jar. She bolts into town. And very simply, she says this. Come see a man. You guys got to come see. You guys got to come on and see this guy. 
What a simple, just come see. It was a very simple invitation. And she was transparent. Her story was simply to say what Jesus had done for her. Come see the man who told me everything about me. He didn't judge me. He didn't, he didn't ignore me. He didn't look past me. He didn't look down on me. He knew everything about me, and he still offered me living water. Come see the man. We are called to live on mission. Amen. We cannot deny Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Go into all the world, baptizing, teaching, and making disciples. We can't deny the call to be on mission. So the question is simple. Are we doing this? Are your eyes open to see the harvest in your world? Are you telling the story of how Jesus changed your life? Are you being satisfied by the living uh, mission of God? Are you worshiping through your witness? I've had to be honest with the Lord this week and just say, God, I need you to reprove some things in my heart. Because a lot of times my evangelism swings on the gate that looks like this, convenience. I'm going to say this other word just to be real transparent. Um, sometimes my evangelism swings on the hinge of who I'm with when I do it. In other words, who's going to see me evangelize? I might get real brave as an evangelist if somebody's seeing me do it. I mean, that's kind of crazy for a pastor to say, well, I'm not taking it back. It's true. I want to live on God's mission. And I don't want it to be about convenience. And I don't want it to be about making somebody think I'm super spiritual. I want it to be because of the story I have in Jesus Christ. And as an act of worship, I just want to tell that story. Because maybe, just maybe, he'll transform someone else and give them a story too. And now, I get to rejoice with this person.